This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis? And we'll be working through several parts of, of Genesis, and so make sure you just keep your Bibles open there. If you were here last week, and I know some of you weren't able to be, or maybe you at least listened online, uh, we talked about the difference between reacting and responding. And we said that reacting generally is fueled by the flesh. In other words, something bad happens, something unexpected happens, and, and, and we react. Sometimes we react with a four-letter word. And I hope none of you reacted that way this past week. Or, or we slam a door or, or we throw something. That, that is a reaction fueled by the flesh. Whereas responding, or at least the type of response we discussed last week, is fueled by the spirit. Something bad happens, and instead of an ugly reaction, we see a beautiful response. And that's why that some of the people that we respect the most are not necessarily sports stars or celebrities or, or super wealthy people. Rather, they are they're people who have been hurt, sometimes unjustly, unfairly, and, or, or maybe they faced extraordinary health challenges or, or they were handed a, a divorce against their will or they lost a job. But these people didn't lose their love for life. They didn't become bitter. They, they, they chose to not lay down and give up. Rather, they chose a spirit-led response. Now, reaction, whether it's that bad word that comes out of our mouth or, or that snide response to someone that maybe even we think deserves it, or when we get the service or when we don't get the service at a restaurant that we think we should, and we react with harsh words, and no tip, here's what happens. We, th that reaction will set off a domino effect to where we will eventually be known by those reactions. We'll be known as a hothead. We will be known as someone with a foul mouth, a quick tongue. Our reactions will end up as part of our legacy. But, but on the other hand, a measured, controlled, spirit-led response will also become part of our legacy, and we will be looked up to as a role model and someone that is admired and respected. Now, since your pastor, and I, knew, I know you can't fathom this, but since your pastor was very long-winded last week, thank you for not saying amen, and couldn't finish the message, today we're going to pick up the second half of last week's lesson that we entitled, Reacting versus responding. Let me give you a quick review. We went to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, looked at a story that if you were raised in church, you're very familiar with. It's the story of Joseph, a young 17-year-old teenager who chose to respond rather than react. And, and this was not just one isolated incident. We, we kept referring to him as, as kind of like a pinball in a pinball machine that bounced from one unfair incident to another, to another, to another. In fact, here was his resume. Joseph, son of Jacob, or today we would have said Joseph Jacobson, 
kidnapped once, sold twice, framed, imprisoned unjustly long term. That was his resume. But for 25 years, uh, until the situation was resolved, Joseph Jacobson responded, led by the Spirit. He did not react in the flesh. Now, last week we left Joseph in prison. We got to get him out today. And, and the reason he was in prison was that his boss's wife had ordered Joseph, who was her slave, to, to come to bed with her. Day after day, she said, Joseph, come to bed with me. Day after day, Joseph refused. And as a result, she was embarrassed. I mean, here, he was a slave. She was high society. The continual refusal embarrassed her, humiliated her, angered her, and so... To get even, she lied and accused Joseph of the thing that he would not do. Accused him of rape to her husband Potiphar, who was a high official in the government. And he reacted. The Bible says he burned with anger, threw him into prison. Why? For a crime that Joseph wouldn't commit. But in spite of these unjust circumstances, Joseph kept responding in a high character way that pleased God. Let's pick up the story, Genesis chapter 39. You've got your Bibles there, verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, and, and it, you know, initially it doesn't appear this way, but while he was in prison, the Lord was with him. Um, while being punished unjustly for refusing to go to bed with his master's wife, the Lord was with him. And the Lord showed him kindness. Now, if you were raised in church, you probably have heard that this original word kindness in the, in the Hebrew, um, which is the original language in which the Old Testament was written, the word kindness, we translate to kindness, is actually loving kindness. And the word is a covenant word. Joseph had made a covenant to love and to serve God regardless. So he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden, which presents a problem for our Christianity, most versions of Christianity, because in our way of thinking, if God is with you, you will not be put in a position to where you get to know the prison warden. And that's what we think. You know, if God is with you, we're not going to have bad things happen to us as good people. But that's what happened. Joseph found favor in verse 22. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph, gave him success in whatever he did. Now, as we go through this account today, remember that when this story was documented, it was compressed. If, if you just do a surface reading of this account without actually studying it, you will not realize how much of a time period passes by. But, but weeks go by. In fact, months go by. Years go by. And for all practical purposes, it appears that Joseph's story is going to end in prison. Because the next verse appears to start a new, totally unrelated storyline. So it looks like the author has given up on Joseph, has written Joseph off as a lost cause. He's switching to another subject. 
And in this next verse, Pharaoh has a falling out with his butler. You say, what's a butler? Well, it was his cupbearer. And, and what the, the cupbearer, the butler did was to taste the wine, make sure it wasn't poisoned or make sure that, you know, it was good, good quality wine. Pharaoh had a falling out with him. But at the same time, he had a falling out with his baker. And you know what a baker is. Let's find out what happened in Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, offended their master, the, the king of Egypt. And I wonder what happened. What happened that ticked Pharaoh off against both of these guys at the same time? We, we don't know that. Verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. So there in a, in a divine twist, Joseph, who looked like had been written off, comes back into the story. Verse 4, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. And don't forget, this is compressed, so a lot of time goes by. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. And so Joseph is maybe serving them breakfast one morning because he had been assigned to serve them. And he notices they're down. They're down in the dumps. And he says, guys, you look, you look down. You look down, so what's up? What's going on? And, and they say, well, Joseph, we, we both had dreams last night. And we don't know if they're good dreams or, or, or bad dreams. Uh, you, you know, we're trying to rack our brains and, and figure out what these dreams mean. Well, in, in verse 8, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? So he still has full confidence in God. He says, tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer, the wine taster, the butler told Joseph his dream. Here it is. In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, put the cup in his hand. He finishes the dream. And, and Joseph maybe smiles and says, I got some good news for you. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now, the, the butler doesn't know if Joseph is credible or not. All he knows, Joseph is a fellow prisoner, has been assigned to serve them. But if you've ever been in a really bad situation long-term, you know, whether it's a relative with a terminal illness, a child that's going down the wrong road. Isn't it true that you grasp at anything that might give you a ray of hope, even if you don't know if the source is credible? And so the cupbearer, even though Joseph is just a fellow prisoner, he begins to have a little bit of hope that his horrible ordeal is maybe about over. Now, Something that I want to bring out at this point in the story, we, we discover something about Joseph that's true about all of us, about you, about me. Um, as much as Joseph was trusting in God, he still wanted out of jail. 
he still went out of jail. Just because you know that God is with you doesn't mean you can't wish and even try to do everything possible to get out of your horrible circumstances. You know that I was raised in a, in a Spanish-speaking country, and we have a, a, a saying that many of you have heard and maybe you've tried to say. Um, and the translation into English just doesn't have the ring. You know, there's some things that you, you translate, and it just doesn't sound right in English. But you, you probably heard the, the saying, Que sera, sera. Anybody? How many of you have tried to say that, and you said, Que sera, sera? <laughs> well, you sound like a, a gringo, if I could just... Pardon, pardon me, but que sera, sera. What does that mean? What will be, will be. And it just doesn't sound as cool in English as it does in Spanish. But I don't believe that God wants us to sit around with a fatalistic view and just say, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Or, or here's the way we say it in Cedar County. I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Or I guess it was meant to be. Do you know what that philosophy is called? That is fatalism. And I was researching the roots of fatalism this past week, and I had never done this research, but fatalism, you know, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, or guess it was just meant to be, or whatever. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. This is something I totally knew to me that I learned this week. Back in the mid-300s B.C., before Christ, he began promoting this concept of, guess it, ah, it, ah, what will be, will be. But know that what ends up happening is not always God's will. So, so be very cautious about saying, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. It didn't work out, so it wasn't meant to be. You know, sometimes that could be God's will. But are you aware that Satan still works in our world today? And are you aware that sometimes the flesh gets involved in things? And they cause things that aren't God's will. So be very careful about just saying, well, I guess it was meant to be because it happened. It must be God's will. No, that's fatalism. That's not biblical. But anyway, Joseph is trusting God, but he wants out of jail. And he knows that the butler will have his job restored back, and so he sees a little open door for him to maybe get out of jail. So here's what he says to the butler in Genesis 40, 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me? Show me kindness? Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison? For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and in, even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So, Mr. Wine Taster, please put in a good word to Pharaoh about me. That was the butler. Meanwhile, the baker is sitting there listening. He's heard Joseph say to the butler that he's going to be released in three days, and you know the baker's starting to get excited. And he said, Joseph, my turn. And, and I had a dream too. And we read that dream in, in, in verse 16. Short dream said, on my head there are three baskets of bread. Kind of get a visual here. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And, and the baker finishes telling the dream and 
Joseph just kind of shakes his head. And, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that one. That one's too tough for me. That, that's not really what he said, okay? You're supposed to check me out, okay? That's probably what Joseph wanted to say. Because he looks at the baker and probably takes a deep breath and okay. And in verse 18, Joseph said, this is what it means. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh, Pharaoh will lift off your head. So with the butler, Joseph said, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. But with the baker, Joseph said, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. And Joseph probably should have stopped with that. But he continued on and he said, and there's more bad news. He's going to hang your body on a tree. And there's still more bad news. The birds are going to come and eat away your flesh. Have a nice day, sir. And maybe he looked around in the prison and said, anybody else need a dream interpreted? Well, just as Joseph said in verse 20, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand, into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just of Joseph, just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. Now remember Joseph has asked the butler to put in a kind word for him to Pharaoh. And so you almost have to think that every time somebody bangs on the door of the dungeon, Joseph is thinking, this is my day. Every time the warden calls his name, Joseph, he thinks he's got good news for me. But the Bible tells us in verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Can we just pause a minute and, and, and talk about this? How many times have we done something similar to that? Listen just a second. Maybe we told someone that we would pray for them but we forgot. Or someone passes away and we tell the relatives, I'll be there for you. You can count on me, but we're not there for them. How many of us say things like that, but we never come through? Well, Joseph is now no longer 17 years old. He's in his late 20s. He again has to update his resume. You want to know his resume now? Joseph, son of Jacob, or, or Joseph, Jacob's son, kidnapped once, sold twice, framed, imprisoned unjustly, going on close to 10 years behind bars. And I think that in a way, this intersects with our lives. You know, obviously none of us has ever served as a slave. A few of us might have spent a few days in jail. I, I thought about asking you to raise your hand here, but then thought maybe that's not smart. Maybe the whole church would raise their hands. I don't know. 
got a rough bunch here sometimes, but, but, but where this really intersects with our lives is that many of us have spent years being enslaved, enslaved to addictions, enslaved to lust, enslaved to pornography, enslaved to unhealthy habits, or enslaved to feelings of worthlessness, enslaved to darkness, enslaved to depression, enslaved to fear. Well, for Joseph, two more years go by. He moves into his 30s. That means he has now been a slave or in prison for 13 long, long years. Well, again, in in what seems to be unrelated to anything happening in the dungeon, Pharaoh has a series of disturbing dreams. And and to save time, I'm not going to read the dreams. But one of the dreams involved, you ready for this? This is the dream. No lie. Seven fat cows eating up seven skinny cows. You, you can read it. That's what it was. The other dream involves seven heads of healthy grain swallowing seven heads of unhealthy grain. But anyway, Pharaoh has those dreams, calls in all of his counselors and advisors, and he tells them the dreams and, and says, okay, tell me the meaning. And, and everybody just kind of looks around, looks down, and they're stumped. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the butler has a flashback. He said, I can't believe that I forgot. His mind goes back to what Joseph has said to him two years ago. And in verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. In other words, Pharaoh, you remember a couple of years ago, we had our falling out, and I hate to even bring it up. <laughs> but, but you put me in a dungeon, and yeah, yeah, I probably deserved it. But while I was there, there was a Hebrew young man. He interpreted my dream correctly. He said he was innocent. Seemed like a fine young man. Since nobody here is able to interpret your dream kind of as a last-ditch effort, you might see what he can do. I'm sure he's still in prison. And scripture tells us that immediately Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And there's a little interesting detail that, you know, because I'm more probably interest nobody but me. But, but scripture says in verse 14, when he had shaved and changed his clothes. No telling how long it had been since he had shaved, showered, changed his clothes. He did that. He came before Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh tells Joseph the two dreams he had. Now, what comes next are, are, are perhaps some of the most courageous words ever spoken. And don't, don't forget the setting. Joseph is a foreigner. He's a slave that has been in prison for about 10 years. He hears the dream of probably the most powerful man in the entire world. Uh, he's Joseph's only ticket out of jail. And, and Joseph says this after he hears the dream. I cannot do it. And at that point, I kind of imagine the butler who recommended Joseph to Pharaoh in the first place start squirming and muttering under his breath, this ain't going to end well. Joseph continues on, I cannot do it, but God, but God. 
Now, before I finish the phrase, let me explain something. That phrase, but God, presented a major problem. Because Pharaoh thought he was a god. And so the phrase, but God, had the potential of setting Pharaoh off. But, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And, and as Joseph finishes that statement, I have to imagine that everybody in the royal courtroom, they <gasps> suck in their breath. And as they say on Duck Dynasty, how many of you watch Duck Dynasty? The rest of you, you don't know what you've missed. But anyway, on Duck Dynasty, they say, he gone, he gone, and those in the royal courtroom think, oh, he gone. But Pharaoh was more curious than offended, and so he lets Joseph continue on, and, and Joseph looks Pharaoh in the eye and says, Pharaoh, here's what your dreams mean. For the next seven years, there's going to be an abundant grain harvest in Egypt. There's going to be so much grain, you're not going to know what to do with it all. But after those seven years of plenty, there will be seven years of famine. And as Joseph finishes, I can imagine that everyone in the royal courtroom goes silent. And you could hear a pin drop. But then Joseph breaks the silence and begins to do the unthinkable. He, he maybe takes a couple of steps closer to Pharaoh. And, and this slave, this prisoner that had been in the dungeon for over a decade, he said, Pharaoh, if you don't mind... Let me give you some direction on how to handle the next seven years of abundance to prepare for the seven years of famine. And in Genesis 41, 33, it says, And now Pharaoh, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land. And to save time, I'm not going to read the rest of it. But he proceeds to give detailed instructions on how, on how to handle the next 14 years. And, and how did Pharaoh take that? Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asks him, and this is a key question. Please listen. It says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God? This past Tuesday... As I was studying and meditating on this scripture in my office, I, and, and I told my wife this morning, I don't know why I'm such a ball baby today, but, but as I was studying this Tuesday, tears came to my eyes as the power and the implication of this statement settled down on me. Because look, here it is. Pharaoh, a complete pagan, who had nothing to do with God, never wanted anything to do with God, Jehovah. He recognized the spirit of of God in Joseph. And once this phrase settled in on me this past week, I, I sat there and I just prayed, oh God, I want that same spirit that Joseph had. And I began to pray, God, would you just fill me with your spirit? Because when we have the spirit of God, even people who are sinners, even people who are far from God, even people who have a rough mouth, they recognize there's something wonderfully different about us. Well, in a response that was so unexpected, in verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. 
you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. This slave, (laughs) slave or prisoner for 13 years, immediately goes to work as the number two man in all of Egypt. And he takes the bumper crops of the next seven years and stores the grain in strategic locations. And the the Bible says that the grain was so plentiful it was like the sand of the sea. For you farmers, wouldn't it be awesome to have a bumper crop like that? And then in another random detail that probably interests no one but me, it says that they started out keeping records but gave up because the massive amounts of grain made record keeping impossible. But then after seven years, the rain stopped. Week after week, month after month, stretching into years, no rain. But Joseph had been preparing for this time, and so he opened up the storehouses of grain and began to sell grain to those who came. Well, this famine spread, spread across the borders to where Joseph's family, his dad and brothers lived. They eventually ran out of food. And and again, the story takes a very interesting twist. Here's what happens next. Genesis 42.1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at at each other? You know, Cedar County version is, don't just sit there, do something. He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And again, if you know this, if you've heard this story, you know what happens next. And if, if this would be a movie, the soundtrack would change Because the stage is now set for payback. Fortunes have been reversed. The power brokers who sold Joseph into slavery have no power. They're desperate for food. And the former victim, the 17-year-old boy that had been sold into slavery, is now the 40-year-old prime minister of Egypt. And what comes next will be the ultimate test. Will Joseph react or will he respond? So far, he's been able to have measured godly responses, but sometimes forgiving those closest to us. Maybe an ex? Maybe a former friend or a business partner? The wrongs by those closest to us are sometimes more difficult to forgive. So Jacob says to his sons, Quit sitting there, do something. Rumor has it that there's plenty of grain in Egypt. Make the trip there, find out. When they arrive in Egypt and go to the grain storehouses, the brothers, because they're foreigners, they bow low with their faces to the ground to those in charge of distributing the grain. Joseph is there. He happens to see this delegation of foreigners. And his heart has to skip a beat or maybe even jump clear into his throat. He can't believe it. This surely can't be. And maybe he pinches himself to to make sure he isn't dreaming. But right there in front of him, with their faces bowing low to the ground, begging to buy grain, are none other than his brothers who sold him into slavery 23 years ago. The brothers also see him. They don't recognize him. 
They don't have the slightest idea who they're bowing down to. And, and of course, this was a fulfillment of a dream that Joseph had when he was still at home. And we don't have time to go into that either, but you can read it. But, but this is such a huge moment. The brothers bowing down before Joseph. It's a huge moment. Let, let's not rush past this. In fact, let's take just a moment and climb inside of Joseph's mind. I have a feeling that in that moment, Joseph has some flashbacks. I wonder if he vividly remembers the terror when his brother stripped him of his clothes and threw him into that empty well 23 years ago. I wonder if he had a flashback to where he remembers the, the dank and the musty smell of that well. And you know how smells can linger in your mind for years. My, my grandma and grandpa, Trussell, that lived there in, in Arkansas and in, in rice country. And sometimes I walk into a place where the smell reminds me of walking into their house decades ago. There's just something about it. Sometimes smells are just etched there to where you, you, you just remember. But I'm wondering if he has a flashback. I wonder if he has a flashback to the horrible fear as just a 17-year-old wondering what's going to happen. You know, I'm in this well. I can't get out. Am I going to die? But then... He probably has a flashback remembering his emotion of relief as, as the brothers lift him out of the well and he thinks, thank, he thinks, thank God, thank goodness, only to have those emotions dashed as the brothers begin to negotiate a price to sell him to the slave traders. I, I was also wondering, do you think he had a flashback? Slave traders start taking him away and looking at back at his brothers and maybe they're kind of giggling as they see him disappear. I wonder if he has a flashback. Remember the humiliation of being stripped down because that's what they did. They stripped them down so they could see the muscles of the slaves and they're on the auction block. Flashback. The auctioneer saying, going once, twice, sold to Potiphar. I have a feeling he remembers as if it were yesterday being falsely accused of rape and the hopelessness of being in prison for 10 years. Maybe in his mind he even remembers the devastation of being forgotten by the butler when he was restored back to Pharaoh's palace. I have a feeling that the last 23 years of being like a pinball bouncing around from here to there I, I wonder if 23 years is kind of like one of those dust devils that's just going around in his mind from memory to memory to memory to flashback and as I study the account as Joseph sees his brothers it, it's almost it, it almost has the feel that Joseph doesn't know what to do. It's almost as if he begins stalling. It's almost like he's trying to get control of his emotions. And, I, and I'm wondering if he's debating in his mind, okay, is this the time to let them have it and give them a taste of their own medicine? 
payback time? And so Joseph, as he's stalling, he begins to question and test them and maybe even toy with them a little bit. I kind of took that out of it. In the questioning, he finds out that their father is still alive, and he finds out that his younger brother, Benjamin, is at home with dad. And, and so again, to probably test them to see if they're still selfish, he basically takes one of them, Simeon, as, as a safe deposit or a hostage, Send the others, sends the others back to Benjamin. To, to get Benjamin to bring him back. And this account goes on and on, and, and there are so many chapters here, so much detail, and we could really spend probably another month or two just on, on this account here. But after some time, the brothers come back for food again. And this time, the younger brother, Benjamin, the second favorite, comes, and again, Joseph tests them. Once again, to save time, I'm leaving out a lot of details, and I'm conden- condensing the account that's already condensed. But anyway, after testing them different ways, all 11 of his brothers are back in front of him. Joseph begins to realize that he's losing it. He's tried to be professional about this and to keep his emotions in check. But the tears start flowing. Let me just read the text. It just is, this is so filled with emotion. In Genesis 45, 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. So so catch the setting. His brothers are probably on their knees before the second command over all of Egypt. They're on their knees before a man whom they don't think they know. And this man looks at each of them from face to face to face to face. He starts crying. And then he's sobbing. And after 23 years of being away from them, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, catch the emotion. I am Joseph. The brothers probably look up. And the word doesn't say this, but I wonder if they had flashbacks as well. They probably remember the look of horror and panic and maybe even tears in the eyes of that 17-year-old boy as he's led away away by slave traders. They probably remember the nightmares they'd had over the last 23 years. The guilt that no doubt they'd experienced. They look at this man in the face. Joseph has aged. He's now 40 years old. They last saw him at 17. But they see that, yeah, that is indeed Joseph. And before his brothers can say anything, Joseph says, is my father still living? And, but, but they still can't come up with the words because they're so panic-stricken and they realize Joseph has all the power, and they have zero power. Paybacks are never good. His brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. How do you think Joseph is going to react or respond? Joseph defies expectations. He defies logic. He defies the flesh. 
And his brothers did not know this, but his brothers did not need to be terrified in his presence because in their absence, Joseph had lived every single day of his life not being led by the flesh, rather being led by the spirit. And now again, in the, in the biggest test of his life, Joseph chooses not to react. He chooses to respond. And he forgives his brothers. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.